Well, I invite you to turn your Bibles now with me to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. And as I uh, thought about this morning, uh, for numerous reasons, I, we're going to slow down and we're going to really focus this morning on chapter 25, verse 1. Um, this whole section is about the judgment, and Jesus uses a description of judgment at his second coming, the separating of the sheep and the goats. This morning, I want to begin in verse chapter 25, verse 31, and I'm going to read through the end of the chapter just to orient us to what is going on. And again, though, this morning we're going to focus on verse 1 and just consider what the biblical significance is when Jesus says that the Son of Man is going to sit on his glorious throne. This is God's word. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you, from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it, did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Amen. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. O God, as we come this morning to the words of your Son, our Lord, they are heavy words, heavy words for us to consider as we embark upon this new year. We pray, not only this morning, but in the coming weeks, that this portion and what are of your word and what our Lord has to say would transform our lives, make us different, that we would live differently because of our interaction with the words of Jesus here. May we be changed 
and be equipped to help others know of the judgment that's coming and how they may be ready for it. Bless us now as we study in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we have questions about this passage, and as I alluded to, we're likely going to take several weeks uh, on this passage. There's much here, and, and for good reason should we slow down, because these verses are really the pinnacle, the culmination of the Olivet Discourse, this occasion, which is when Jesus is speaking on the Mount of Olives, just shortly before he is about to be betrayed and crucified, and he is speaking to his disciples. He's been teaching them and us about being ready for his coming. He has been repeating themes and telling parables and illustrations of how we ought to be prepared for his coming, and that we ought to know the great events that are going to happen in the last days. His disciples had asked him, what would be the sign of his coming and the end of the age? They asked that in chapter 24, verse 3. And chapters 24 and 25 are Jesus' answer and a lengthy discourse, longest in the Gospel of Matthew to his disciples. And here we come to the culmination. This is, this is incredible in this passage. Here Jesus, in his words to his disciples, will allude and refer to himself as the king for the first time. Now, he's, you, he'll use the word king. It's not that he's been denying. He's, he's, he's been embracing all the messianic promises all along in his ministries. But now, on the eve of his betrayal and then his crucifixion, he is speaking rather plainly to his disciples, who will be his apostles, about what is to come. And he is owning the fact that he is the descendant of David, the promised king, and he's telling them what is going to happen so that how they may be ready and prepare others to be ready. But this morning, I want to slow down and I want to meditate with you on verse 31 because I'm concerned as we move on that we have a tendency as modern-day Christians to, to divorce the Old Testament from the New. Some of you have in your Bible you have between the Old Testament and the New Testament, you have a blank page, or you have a, a page that's just a spacer. Uh, that is not inspired. That is fallible. That is not accurate. This is one book. This is one word. This is one Bible. And we want to be careful even how we refer to the old, because often when we refer to old things in life, like clothes or cars, we often think that which is tired and worn or superseded by something new and better. And we dare not say that about the holy and errant scriptures. They are alive and they are living and they are active and they are perfect. There is nothing old about the Old Testament in that way. All we mean by that is that it was the scriptures given through by God through the prophets until the coming of Jesus and his apostles. And the apostles, the New Testament is really the new covenant scriptures. They flesh out the promises of the old covenant scriptures. But they are one scripture, one Bible, one word from one God. And I say all that because often when we think of Jesus as king, we as modern day Christians, we don't tend to bring into that 
concept, all of the richness of the Old Testament scriptures. And so this morning, I want to help you. We're, we're largely this morning just going to look at old, various Old Testament passages that help us understand the significance of what Jesus means in verse 31 and what he says. First of all, this morning, I want you to notice, number one, that Jesus is the divine Son of Man. The divine Son of Man. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes. I almost had another point. His coming is certain. Do you, do you notice he says, when, not if. But I, I have several points, and so I, I cut that one off. But his, he doesn't say if. He doesn't say maybe. When... The Son of Man comes. He owns that title. Now that title, Son of Man, was used by God to refer to other men, like Ezekiel especially. If you read the book of Ezekiel, uh, I almost want to ask for a show of hands, but I won't do that. How many of you are reading through your Bible this year? Um, it's, it's okay if you're not. It's, there's no thou shalt, but you should uh, read through your whole Bible at some point. And I encourage you in this new year to get a plan. And if you need a suggestion, I'd love to help you with that. But Ezekiel, if you're reading the book of Ezekiel, God refers to his servant, the prophet Ezekiel, as son of man. And he's noting that Ezekiel is a mere man. But that title is used not only of Ezekiel and other men. It is a special messianic title used in Daniel chapter 7. And I want to encourage you, if you have a Bible with you this morning, to turn to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. When Jesus is speaking to his disciples on the Mount of Olives, when he uses these phrases, he's speaking to Jewish men who have been reared in the synagogue. These scriptures are their scriptures They know them. They are anticipating the literal fulfillment, and rightly so. And Jesus, far from announcing something brand new to them, is merely telling them how these Old Testament prophecies are going to come to pass in him. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, Daniel was given a vision by God. He says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man came, was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Now, the ancient of days is God himself that's made clear in verses 9 and 10 of Daniel chapter 7. So here we have coming up to the very throne of the Most High God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the Lord, one who is like a son of man. Daniel is trying to describe this man. He is like a man, and yet he's glorious in his appearance, so that he says he's one like a son of man. He's an extraordinary figure. There are myriads of angels around this throne. You see that in verse 10. Thousands and thousands are attending the Lord. This is the throne of the Most High. No one, no, not even the mightiest angel 
as it were, walks up to the throne of the Most High. But here, one like a son of man, in verse 13, was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented. And then, verse 14, to him was given a dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion, this son of man, is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And that's in the context of Daniel, where Daniel had been given the vision of, of the kingdom, the Babylonian kingdom, the Greek kingdom, and finally the Roman kingdom, these powerful worldly kingdoms that would be crushed ultimately by this kingdom, the kingdom of the Son of Man. And so when Jesus in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 says, when the Son of Man comes, there is in that term, in that phrase, all of the the kingly and regal and divine majesty of the prophecy and the vision of Daniel chapter 7. He is the divine Son of Man. In other words, he's Yes, he was truly man, conceived of the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary, but the mystery of the person of Christ is that he is one person, two natures, truly divine, truly human, unique, none like him. He is the divine son of man. It's quite a claim. He was no good teacher, merely good teacher. He was no mere kind healer. He claimed to be the divine son of man, the messianic figure. Secondly, this morning, I want you to note that in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, Jesus claims that he has a glory. He states that word twice. Son of man, when he comes in his glory, that's quite a claim right there. Uh, I I don't have glory. Um, Old guys, we talk about our glory days, and when you actually examine those glory days, there's actually not much glory there. Um, Jesus claims, and he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, this glory is his. It is his possession. It is his right. And it is not just his glory that he possesses privately, but the day is coming, verse 31, at the end of verse 31, when he will sit on his glorious throne. It's his glory, and he's going to sit on his glorious throne. That glory, if you turn back to Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, Jesus tells us, Matthew 16, 27, is none other than the glory of God, the glory of his Father, Matthew 16, verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then will repay every man according to his deeds. His glory is the glory of the Father, which means his glory is the very glory of God. Amazing. This is a fulfillment. If you want to turn back with me to Psalm 102, you getting your fingers ready this morning? You're going to be like good Bereans and examine what I'm saying in light of Scripture? 
Psalm 102, verse 16. Again, a prophecy of what will happen in the future. God will arise, verse 13, have compassion on Zion, that is Jerusalem. The nations, verse 15, will fear the name of the Lord. All the kings of the earth, your glory. Then verse 16, for the Lord has built up Zion. He has appeared in his glory. Now, it's true that the Shekinah glory of God appeared at the dedication of the temple and then There was a vision of the glory of God departing the temple. It's true that God can make a visible manifestation of his glory with light and fire. But the fulfillment of Psalm 102, verse 16, will be truly and most ultimately fulfilled when God incarnate in God the Son will be visibly sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. It's going to happen. And this is a major theme of Scripture. It's a major theme. We'll, we'll look at that more in just a few moments, the theme of the throne. But I just want you to notice for a moment that Jesus possesses the glory of the Father. We need to remember that when we think of Jesus. We need to have high thoughts of him. He, he's humble and he's meek and lowly, and God gave him to us so that, that we can relate to him And yet at the very same time, he is God, glorious. We see this most clearly in Revelation chapter 1 as we go forward in our Bibles. And I want you to notice a connection this morning between Revelation 1 and Daniel chapter 7 that maybe you haven't noticed before. Revelation chapter 1, verse 12 You know this if you've looked at Revelation at all. There might be a lot that's mysterious to us in Revelation, but this opening chapter and what it tells us about Jesus, it gets our attention, and rightly so. John, the beloved disciple of Jesus, the closest one to Jesus in his ministry on earth, sees a vision of the risen, ascended exalted, reigning, glorified Christ. And in verse 12, John says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. Having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. Heard that phrase before? Daniel chapter 7. And you better believe the Holy Spirit in and through John is making the connection overt and obvious this is the same figure i saw one says john like the son of man clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash his head and his hair were white like white wool like snow and his eyes were like a flame of fire his feet were like burnished bronze when it is not when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in its strength. This is the glory of Jesus. This is the Jesus we serve and praise this morning. 
This is the Jesus who loved us and gave himself up for us. But I want you to notice especially, uh, why don't you turn back in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. I should have told you to keep your finger there for a moment. But it's good if you, Daniel chapter 7 is one of those places in your, that your Bible ought to fall open to. It's unique. Now, we already read verses 13 and 7, 14. We saw one like a son of man. And now we've seen in the book of Revelation, the disciple John, the apostle, sees a revelation of Christ as he is now, one like a son of man, and his, his hair is white like wool, his eyes are like fire, his face shines like the fire of the sun. We use the phrase, like father, like son. Not only is this figure in Revelation like the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, but he gives off the same glory as the Most High who's revealed in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. There Daniel says, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, his, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was coming from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, the books were opened. I brought you here because... Not only is the revelation of Christ in the opening chapter of Revelation like the Son of Man in Daniel 7.13, what I want you to notice is that there is an overt claim that this one like the Son of Man bears the resemblance of the Ancient of Days and shares with the Ancient of Days the glory of God. This is Jesus. This is the Son of Man. And this is the glory that Jesus is going to come again in. This is who he is. This is why our lives should be joyfully serious. This is why our worship should be joyfully serious. This is why we should fear God and fear Christ. We love him. We adore him. There's no one we are more safe with, and there is no one more dangerous than God and Christ, the Most High God. Jesus is the divine Son of Man. Jesus will come again in his glory Thirdly, I want you to notice this morning that in Matthew 25, verse 31, Jesus says that the Son of Man will come with all his angels. With all his angels. Now, God is called well over 200 times in the Old Testament the Lord of hosts or Yahweh of hosts. And those hosts are not mere physical armies of men, the armies of Israel. He's the God of the armies of Israel. But prominently and most decidedly, he is the Lord of hosts, meaning the hosts of angels, the holy angels. These angelic beings, these powerful beings, mighty, incredible. Most often in the Bible, we are introduced to one angel, like Gabriel or Michael. Or a few angels, like the angels that visited Abraham, or that went to save Lot and his wife and bring them out of 
Sodom and Gomorrah. But God is not the God of one or two powerful angels, not a dozen, not a hundred, but hosts, myriads of myriads. And in the Bible, I couldn't really think of a time, and perhaps there is one, when all the angels of God show up. There are instances in the Old Testament when a large host of angels are revealed. But at this occasion, what Jesus talks about at his second coming, when he comes to this earth again, he is going to come with all his angels. Heaven, as it were, is going to be emptied. All of them will be marshaled. All of them will be called. All of them will be assembled. Awesome. One angel is powerful enough to obliterate all the armies of the earth. They are not cute little fuzzy chubby babies. Cherubs. I know some of you have them on your Christmas tree. It's okay. But as long as you just understand that's not an angel. Whatever that is, that is no angel. When you see an angel, no matter how grown of a man you are, no matter how mature you are, no matter how seasoned you are, no matter how much you know the scriptures, even if you've known Jesus, like John the Apostle, when you see an angel, you tend to faint and fall on your face in sheer terror. Those are how powerful these beings are. They are awesome, and they serve God and do his bidding. And Jesus says when he comes again to this earth, the next time his resurrected toes set foot on this planet, he will have behind him all the myriads and hosts of God Most High. And notice the staggering claim. He doesn't say, I'll have all the angels of the Lord of hosts. He will say, all his angels. Those myriads and myriads and thousands upon thousands of angels that were attending the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7, the angels, the hosts of God, Jesus claims are his, his, one with the Father. They belong to him. They are the armies of God, and then they are the armies of Jesus. He will come with all his angels. What will it be like when he commands every angel in his possession to accompany him and all his saints, by the way? If you're a Christian, you will be with them there. You will be raised. You will be resurrected. You will be with him. All his holy ones will be with him. And we will witness somehow. We, I believe we will see These spirit beings, God can make known, he can reveal. God will make known the glories of the armies of Jesus. And you wonder why when the armies of this world in rebellion against God are assembled, while they will cower in terror, is because they will see Jesus, the glorious one, and all his angels. That is how, fast forward, how he will assemble all people before him. Not a problem. Billions? No problem. He can assemble 10 billion, 12 billion, 20 billion people. Don't worry about the population explosion. He can assemble them all because he doesn't have billions. He has myriads and myriads of angels known in number only to God himself. 
Amazing. He will come with all his angels. Fourthly, this morning, and I want to spend most of our time remaining here, Jesus will sit on his glorious throne in, on earth in Jerusalem. Matthew 26, I'm sorry, chapter 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. This is a dominant theme and neglected theme of Scripture. A king has a throne. God Most High has a throne in heaven. The Son of Man, the Messiah, Jesus, has a throne. It is a glorious throne. But there's more to it. This is the very throne that God promised a descendant of David would sit on. And I want us to see this this morning. That when Jesus is there on the Mount of Olives, he's looking into the eyes of his 12 men. When they're asking him about the sign of the end of the age and about his coming, they've been steeped in all the promises about the renewal of the kingdom, about one who is a seed or descendant of David arising and being set by God on David's throne. They've read these promises. They believe these promises. Jesus does nothing to dispel them. In fact, he only fires them up. He refers to his throne as a glorious throne, and this is not just any throne. This is the throne that God had promised long ago. Turn with me for a few moments to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. A messianic psalm. That is a psalm that God revealed in which was a praise, a song of praise, but spoke and prophesied of the coming Messiah. Psalm 89. Verse 3. There God said, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed. There's that descendant, singular. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. God had promised, when God makes a covenant, he doesn't break it. We may break promises. We may break covenants. God does not. In fact, that's one of the things that God cannot do because he is true and he is faithful. He cannot break his covenant. He will not. And he made a covenant with David in 1 Samuel chapter 7. This is what this psalm is referring to. It's very specific. It's not confusing. David knew exactly what God was referring to. It was mysterious about how it would unfold. But God promised to David that in his line, there would ultimately be one who would sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem forever and ever, even unto everlasting. Psalm 89, verse 28. Look again, it's emphasized. God says, Oh boy, we, I need to back up. <laughs> this is, here's this Messiah. Um, oh, you need to back up all the way to verse 19. 
God's there reveals in the psalm, once you've spoken a vision to your godly ones and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I exalted one chosen from my people. I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. With whom my hand will be established, my arm will also strengthen him. The enemy will not deceive him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. But I shall crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. My faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him, and in my name his horn will be exalted. I shall also set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. This now is going far beyond David. This is speaking now to that one that God promised in the line of David. David ruled over a relatively small little territory. This is now expanding. This this one in the line of David His hand is on the sea to the rivers. He will cry to me, verse 26, You are my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. I shall also make him my firstborn. It's not speaking of physical birth. That means the firstborn in ancient world was the position of ultimate authority and prerogative and inheritance. I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My loving kindness, I will keep him for him forever. And my covenant shall be confirmed to him, so I will establish his descendants forever. And here's the line I wanted to emphasize. And his throne as the days of heaven. The days are of heaven are as the days of God. And God is the ancient of days. No beginning and no end. Jesus will sit on his glorious throne. On the throne of David. Turn to Psalm 132. I want you to see this throne of David theme. And we're only looking at a few of the passages that we could go to this morning. Again, what we're doing is we are trying to understand the significance and impact of what Jesus is saying on the Mount of Olives when he speaks to his men and claims to be the Son of Man and says he's going to sit on his glorious throne. That is the Davidic throne. Psalm 132, verse 11. There God said, The Lord has sworn to David a truth which he will not turn back. Of the fruit of your body, I will set upon your throne. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony which I will teach them, their sons shall sit upon your throne forever. For the Lord has chosen Zion Verse 14, my resting place forever. God had said in Psalm 132 that, verse 12, that his sons would sit upon the throne forever. There's not a son of David sitting there now. There is no throne. But there will be. And Jesus is the one who will sit on it. Turn to Isaiah chapter 9, this very familiar passage we See, maybe on Christmas cards this time of year. Isaiah 9, we love this passage. It's in Handel's Messiah. Lofty language about this promised child that will be born. Isaiah verse chapter 9, verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, 
Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Throne of David. The glorious throne that the Son of Man is going to sit on is the fulfillment of that promise to sit on the throne of David. The Davidic Messiah, the promised anointed one, the king, will sit on the Davidic throne. Jeremiah chapter 33. Just a few more passages I want to look at with you. How how sure can we be of this? Because Israel really messed up. How can we know that these promises will come true? Well, God said it for one. And he used language and everybody knew what that language meant. David knew what it meant. It wasn't confusing. wasn't mysterious. There's no key you need to unlock the mysterious meeting. Everybody knew what a throne was. Everybody knew what Zion was. Everybody knew what a seed or a descendant was. There in Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 19, God underscored that he would do this. Put a descendant of David on the throne of David. The Lord of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night, so that the day and night will not be at their appointed time. Can you do that? Know anybody can do that? Not possible. Unless you have the power of the universe, of the galaxy. Can't do that. No one can do that. If you can... Theoretically, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne and with the Levitical priests, my ministers. As the host of heaven, verse 22, cannot be counted, those angels we were talking about, and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. God's going to renew Israel. He's going to join together Judah and Israel, verse 24, and he's going to sit on the throne over them. Jesus, son of Mary and Joseph, son of God, son of David. And nothing's going to stop that unless you can change day and night. And God's point is there's no one who can do that. He's going to do it. The glorious throne will be the throne of David in Jerusalem over renewed Israel in the last days. Jesus embraced this. Matthew 19, turn to Matthew 19. Matthew chapter 19, Jesus knew these Old Testament scriptures, knew that they spoke of him. He didn't spiritualize them away. He didn't allegorize them. He didn't say to his disciples, yes, I, I know God, my father, spoke to you in those earthy terms, but he didn't do any of that. He did nothing to tone down the Old Testament promises. Everything he did was to ramp and amp them up. Matthew 19, verse 28, Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, you who have followed me in the regeneration, that's that future time at the resurrection, When the Son of Man, there he is using that title again, 
when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. It's just Jesus is simply affirming what God promised through Isaiah, through Jeremiah, to David. It's going to come literally fulfilled. That glorious throne, when Jesus returns, will be in a renewed Jerusalem on this earth, and it will be glorious. And that throne, that glorious throne, that throne is glorious. It will be located in Jerusalem. Turn back with me to just a few more passages. Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah chapter 3. Verse 17. During the days of the tribulation, we've learned that there will be horrible days, days of evil and revolt against God unparalleled, the rise of an antichrist figure. He will seek to take the place of Christ, as it were. There will be great persecution of the people who put their faith in Jesus Christ during the tribulation. In the last period of that time, the remaining Jews on earth and Jerusalem and Israel will be surrounded. Learn of that in Zechariah. It will be a, a terrible time. But shortly after that time, we don't, Jesus says you don't know exactly when, but he will appear and he will come and he will come in power and he will save those, that remnant of believing Jews, remnant of Israel, all Gentiles who have trusted in him. And he will come and he will make Jerusalem new. Scriptures have to say in Zechariah and in Joel that when his feet touch down on the Mount of Olives and that future day that a new valley will be opened up. Jerusalem will be made into a massive plain. A new millennial Jerusalem will be made by God and by Christ. He will be at the center of the throne. And in those days, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 17, this has never happened. It will only take place in the future when Christ comes. Jeremiah, God said through Jeremiah, at that time they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord or the throne of Yahweh. And all the nations will be gathered to it, to Jerusalem, for the name of the Lord, nor will they walk any more after the stubbornness of those of their evil hearts. Jesus will reign on his glorious throne from Jerusalem. There are many in our day who spiritualize these things. They, they would say that, well, the fulfillment of the throne of David is just now. He's at the right hand of the Father. Um, Zion is just metaphorical for the church. You don't see anywhere in the New Testament scriptures that's the case, by the way. All these things are spiritualized. We believe and we teach on the plain authority of the scriptures that just like the angel said when the disciples looked, when Jesus, risen from the dead, ascended in glory bodily into the clouds, and they said in Acts chapter 1, why do you stare into the clouds? He will return in the exact same manner. He's going to come bodily, physically, gloriously. He's going to come as the risen, ascended, coming son of David, the Messiah. He is going to conquer his enemies and ours. He's going to establish his capital, his kingdom, with its center in Jerusalem. His throne will be in Jerusalem, but his reign will be from sea to sea. As Zechariah says, the Lord Christ will be king over all the earth. 
Not one particular zip code, county, square inch that will not be under the full, unchecked sway of the Lord Jesus Christ. His throne will be glorious. It'll be in Jerusalem. And if you don't believe that, I I say this in fun, but I can't wait for the day when I look you in the eye and I say, I told you so. And I will, because it's going to be glorious. And we're going to see in our resurrected glorious bodies made fit to be able to take in that kind of glory. We are going to see with perfect vision, not only with our physical eyes, but we're going to have hearts and souls that are have a capacity to take in that kind of glory and not die because we'll be united with Christ. We are now and then we will be then when we see him as he is. And we will be able to see our glorious king sitting on the throne of his father, the throne of David, and in Jerusalem. And we will worship him. We will worship him. A glorious throne. It is the throne not only of Christ, but just two more, well, just a few more passages. But we can go to Revelation this morning. I want you to see that throne. Again, we're examining what Jesus means but he says, his glorious throne. I mean, what kind of glory are we talking about? And that's what we're learning in these moments. This is a glorious throne. A long-promised throne, the throne of David. A victorious throne, a reigning throne. A throne that will be in Jerusalem, but will also be over the whole earth. And that throne is the throne of the Father as well. Revelation 3.21. There again, John is given a vision, insight. And there, Jesus is speaking. And he says to those believers under persecution, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Wow. We won't only see that throne from afar, but according to Jesus' words, all of his saints who persevere in faith until the end, by the grace of God, we will walk up to that throne And in union with Christ, we will be seated with him. I didn't say it. Jesus did. I wouldn't dare say that if it weren't black on white, verse 21. Meaning that Jesus, as part of his glory, raises up his people who were once rebels. He not only loves us, he not only purchases us, he not only cleanses us, but he makes us fit to reign with him in the kingdom. I don't understand, neither do you, all the ramifications of that, but it's incredible. And that throne is the throne of his father, is the throne of the lamb that was slain, and is the throne of God. Chapter 22 of Revelation will end here. Almost. Wait, sorry, one more verse after that. Revelation 22. I just want to kind of whet your appetite for next week. Revelation 22, verse 1. 
John, again, at this point, the battle has been fought. The victory has been done. Satan has been condemned to hell. The books have been opened. The wicked, unbelieving, have been judged, thrown into the lake of fire with the devil and his evil angels. The earth has been made new. There will be a millennial earth, a thousand-year reign of Christ. And at the end of that, when Satan is released and there's a rebellion, Christ will end it. Uh, God will end it with fire from heaven. It'll be a quick wrap-up. And then just to make all things new so that there's no painful memory of the past, God will make a new earth, a new heaven. New earth. The new earth will walk on it. With a new Jerusalem, a heavenly Jerusalem will come down. The throne of God and the throne of, throne of heaven, rather, and the throne of earth will be united in God and Christ and in Revelation 22, verse 1, John has seen a vision and shown a vision, and he says, The angel showed me a river of water of life, bright as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. The throne is glorious. The Son of Man's throne is glorious because it is the throne of God, the throne of the Ancient of Days. Again in verse 3, There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his slaves or his bondservants will serve him. That's us. And we'll serve him with joy and gladness and strength and without sin, and we will see his face, verse 4, that face that shines like the sun. This is just a a little bit of the glory and the significance of what Jesus, when he spoke on the Mount of Olives to his disciples, what he meant when he said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, and then he will sit on his glorious throne. This is grand. This is glorious. This ought to captivate our hearts. This ought to raise our esteem of Jesus Christ shape our service to him this week and this year. This is why we do what we do. This is why we praise him. This is why we love his church. This is why we love his people. This is why we love his praise. This is why we love his ways and his commands. It's because he is the king of kings and lord of lords, the son of David, the bright morning star. He is our king. And next, Lord, say, God willing, Should he not come for us first, which I'm fine with, we'll learn in Matthew chapter 25 about his judgment. And he will judge between the sheep and the goats. And I just want to give you a little little taste and reinforce that when Jesus is speaking to his disciples on the Mount of Olives, he's not coming up with brand new themes. He is owning the entire revelation of the Old Testament scriptures. And in front of his disciples, he's owning it. And he's saying, all these things are going to be fulfilled in me. Turn with me one last passage, Ezekiel 34. It's beautiful. The kings and leaders of Israel were often referred to as shepherds. Ezekiel 34. Shepherds who watched over the flock. And unfortunately, a large part of what God has to say about shepherds 
in the Old Testament is that the leaders of Israel abused the people. They were not shepherds after God's heart. They, they used the sheep for their own purposes. They lied to the sheep. They misled the sheep. They neglected the sheep. They didn't feed and care for the sheep. But God says in Ezekiel 34, verse 15 and following, In that day, God says, he'll gather together his people. I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest, says the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. That's Matthew 25. I will... As for you, my flocks, thus says the Lord, verse 17, behold, I will judge between one sheep and another, between the rams and the male goats. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and sits on his glorious throne, he will separate the sheep from the goats. Ezekiel 34. Mark it. He'll judge between them, and that's what we're going to learn of. Jesus is saying, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to fulfill this. And then, verse 23 and 24, we'll end with this. God says, I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. It may be that David himself, resurrected, will have a role in the future kingdom. But of course, ultimately, it is the son of David, the descendant, that David himself will serve. And that is none other than Jesus Christ. In closing, what do you think about Jesus today? Do you view him in that way? Does he have our loyalty? Does he have our obedience? Are we living our lives and ordering our lives, our work, what we do in light of this? Because again, in closing, I say to you, Jesus did not say if, but when. Let's pray. Oh God, by your mercy, those of us who know Jesus and trust in him, we can't wait. And at the same time, we're a little bit frightened because we know we have some work to do to get ready. Help us, even this week, even this day, to reorder our thoughts, our loyalties, our affections, our time, our resources in light of this truth of the soon coming and the glorious reign of your Son, our Lord Jesus. And for any here this morning, Lord, who have not trusted in you, I pray that today they may turn from their sin and unbelief And as best they know, call upon you in faith, trusting in your death on the cross for our sins to be saved. May it be so in your name. Amen.